I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers and Company. A heart-moving, mind-expanding reminder that millions of people in this country don't have enough to eat. My guest are Mariana Chilton, the director of the Center for Hunger-Free Communities. There's no opportunity for people who are low income to really engage in our democracy, and I think that they're actively shut out as well. And the poverty journalist, Greg Kaufman. There are a lot of corporations that are, you know, want to be involved in, in the fight against hunger, and the best thing they can do is get on board for fair wages. Also, the filmmaker Christy Jacobson on her new film, A Place at the Table. We traveled all over the country and met people who were working and trying to make ends meet, but were not able to put food on the table. Thanks for joining us. The summer blitz of blockbuster movies has arrived. Superheroes, or less immortals with excellent motor skills, are here to save the Earth from supervillains, asteroids, aliens, or other disasters, natural in nature, but probably induced by global warming. Yes, it's another summer of excess and escapism with the thrills and chills of Hollywood scaring us down to our popcorn. Saving the world! And always with a happy ending. Slovia. Meanwhile, back here in the real world where we actually live, the best film of the summer isn't an epic tale of horror or adventure, but an eye-opening, heart-moving, and mind-expanding reminder that millions of people in this richest country in the world, working men and women, and their children, don't have enough to eat. The film's called A Place at the Table, and it's one of the best documentaries I've seen in years. 50 million Americans, one in six, go hungry. And yet, the House of Representatives can't pass a farm bill because our members of Congress continue to fight over how many billions to slash from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, better known as food stamps. Once again, we're hearing all the cliches about freeloaders who are undeserving of government help, playing the system and living large at the expense of taxpayers. This movie, A Place at the Table, breaks those stereotypes apart and shows us that hunger hits hard at people who work hard to make a living. Don't miss this one. It's real life. With me is Christy Jacobson, one of the film's directors and producers. You've seen her work on public television, HBO, ABC, Lifetime, and other TV networks. Marianna Chilton is here, too. She teaches public health at Drexel University and is director of the Center for Hunger-Free Communities. She's also founder of Witnesses to Hunger, a group featured prominently in A Place at the Table. In this excerpt from the film, we meet a rancher and a police officer in Colorado each struggling to make ends meet. Believe it or not, they have to rely on the charitable food program sponsored by the church of a local minister, Pastor Bob Wilson. About a month ago, we had three officers, including myself. However, due to budget constraints, we're now down to just me. It was always kind of a prideful thing that I never needed anybody's help. Unfortunately, I haven't received a pay raise in four years. And what I used to spend on a month in groceries now gets me about two weeks. I have utilized Pastor Bob's food bank. The way it makes me feel, it's, it's very humiliating. I, well, I correct that. It's not humiliating. It's um, very grounding. The stereotype of food banks is always for the unemployed or the disabled, people that can't go out and get a job. That's not always the case. Sometimes in life, you just get to points where you need a little extra help. Ranching is a good part of life. It's a lot of work but it's an honest, actually it's an honest trade. But the way the economy and everything has gone south, I have had to go find another job out of the house. So I work on the ranch from seven in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon, and then at three o'clock in the afternoon till 11 o'clock at night, I go down and clean the school. 
it's a good job. It's close to home. There's a lot that you uh, you worry about. Your kids is the main one. And that's part of the reason I did take a second job is so I can help buy groceries and put food on the table for my kids. Come on, dogs. Welcome to you both. Thank you for Thank having you. So a, a cop who doesn't make enough money to meet all of his food needs and a cowboy who has to take two jobs to help feed his children, are they truly representative or was this just a filmmaker's good luck? Sadly, they're not the exception. In fact, they're very representative. When we were making this film, we traveled all over the country and um, again and again met people who were working and, and trying to make ends meet but were not able to put food on the table. So I think what the, what the, the sort of filmmakers luck or, or hard work uh, paid off in that these are people who might not be willing to share their story. Um, but we filmed in Colburn because it was a town where the pastor, um, Bob, was working really hard to, to remove that stigma that people feel around, around right. um, admitting and then getting help. And so that helped us because we were welcomed into the community. And, um, you know, I remember the first time I met um, uh, the police chief and I met him first on the phone and then in person and I thought he's probably not going to share the story on camera but it's still important to understand and then he said absolutely and um, that that was really really uh, I think a victory for the film and that we were able to to show this um, very important uh, group that are experiencing hunger and food insecurity but that are that are not it's very hidden what do you take from their stories because you work with a totally different population. Mm. I'm not so sure they're that different. That's the thing. I think that there, when you were saying before about stereotypes, I think that um, in the press and our legislators have a certain stereotype about who's poor and who's not um, and this concept of the deserving poor. But the women that I work with through Witnesses to Hunger are very hard working. They're excellent mothers, excellent parents. They want the best for their kids. They're often working two or three jobs. Sometimes they'll have to work under the table in order to make ends meet, trying to find side jobs. They're hustling really hard. And I see the police chief, I see the cowboy who's also taking on that second job. What I see is common among them is a loss of dignity in the work. You can actually work full time and your, your family is still hungry. There's a very big problem in this country that we are not valuing hard work like we used to. There's a young woman in the film who says, quote, hunger could be right next door and you would never know because people are too afraid to talk about it. Why are people afraid to talk about it, Dr. Children? Well, I think there's um, an enormous amount of shame that goes, especially when I, talk, I, I work with moms of little children, young children, and there's an enormous amount of shame that they experience that they may run out of money um, before they can get more food. And um, it really tests their sense of motherhood, their sense of citizenship, of belonging. Um, and it's very isolating. And I think that when the, the moms that I speak with, they talk about when they were children, they too were hungry and they were always told, don't talk about it. Don't let anybody know how hard it is. Always put on a good face, always look good. You know, it's about being able to be in the world and be um, treated with a sense of dignity and respect. So they would often hide their own experiences of hunger or hide their experience that they can't feed their own children. Do we pass hunger down as a legacy to the next generation? Oh yes, we do. It gets transferred from generation to generation. Now it also happens that during an economic downturn where there are not yeah. enough good paying jobs, of course hunger will skyrocket. Um, but I think that when people don't realize that hunger is very damaging to children, to, especially to young children, Food insecurity affects the cognitive, social, and emotional growth of very young children. That means that by the time they arrive to kindergarten, they're not ready for school. That means that when they're in school, if they're hungry, they won't be able to concentrate on what they're learning, and they won't do as well on their math and their reading tests. That means they won't be as successful, won't get a good paying job, so that when they have children, they too will be poor. So poverty is an experience that's really seared into the bodies and brains of children. What happens to someone who gets too little nutrition early in life? Oh, 
it's extremely important. If you think about what's happening in the first three years of life, the brain is growing so fast. They're the most important years of human development. So every moment, those are the building blocks of good cognitive, social, and emotional development. Neurons are, are growing and pruning and very active. 700 neurons are growing a second for an infant. It's the impo most important window of human development. So any type of nutritional deprivation during this time has a, a severe impact on the brain, even if it's just episodic, even if it happens once or twice a month. Those are moments of lost opportunity to be able to interact with their family and their environment, to pay attention and to learn something new, which helps to grow more neurons. So again, it affects the cognitive, social, and emotional development. It creates a certain kind of a stress on the child that's very toxic. And we know that children who experience that kind of toxic stress can't learn as well, can't learn as fast. Um, and you can turn that around with food assistance programs, with a program called WIC, Women, Infants, and Children, or the Food Stamp Program. The best investment of our dollars in this country is investing in very young children and their families because, the, again, those are the most important times when a, child, a child's brain is growing. So for every $1 that you spend on a child, you make $7 back when they become an adolescent. It's a beautiful investment. Christy has a remarkable uh, profile, portrait in the film of a young girl named, I think her name's Rosie. I struggle a lot. And most of the time it's because my stomach is really hurting. So let's take a look. And my teacher tells me to get focused and she told me to write uh, focus on my little sticker. And, I, and every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be focusing. I start yawning, then I zone out, and I'm just looking at the teacher, and I, and I look at her, and all I think about is food. So I have these little visions in, in my eyes. Sometimes when I look at her, I vision her as a banana, so she goes like a banana, and everybody in the class is like apples or oranges, and then I'm like, oh, great. Tell me about Rosie. Hey, Rosie is an incredible young girl, and um, I, I think that what, what struck me so much about Rosie is that her story sort of embodied everything about this issue, which is that while she's experiencing this hunger and food insecurity, it's affecting her self-esteem, it's affecting her ability to learn, which is very upsetting. Um, but at the same time, she has this incredible spirit, which gives you this, you know, some, some feeling of hope and um, inspiration. So she's just an incredible young girl. And that story is replicated in your experience? Oh, very much so. Very common. And I think what people forget is that, um, you, you know, you think you can somehow see hunger. You, you can't look at Rosie and see, oh, no. she's hungry. So yeah. where do you see it? You see it in school performance their ability to get along with others, their ability to pay attention for, for uh, ch children of school age. Attendance. But for, an for attendance. Yeah. But also for really young children, where do you see it? You see it in the increased hospitalizations, showing up more to the emergency room when they don't, it's prevent, with preventable diseases um, or preventable exacerbation of asthma. This is, you know, if we could think about poverty during childhood as a, a type of a disease, if we could pay as much attention to poverty for children as we pay attention to infectious disease, we might be able to do something in this country. The film makes dramatically clear the relationship between uh, malnutrition and obesity. A lot of people think there is a yawning gap between hunger on the one hand and obesity on the other. Here's Raj Patel from A Place at the Table. In fact, they're neighbors. And the reason that they happen often in the same time and often in the same family and the same person is because they are both signs of having insufficient funds to be able to command food that you need to, to, to stay healthy. If you look at what has happened to the relative price of fresh fruits and vegetables, it's gone up. Marion Nessel. By 40% since 1980, when the obesity epidemic first began. In contrast, the relative price of processed foods has gone down by about 40%. So if you have only a limited amount of money to spend, you're going to spend it on the cheapest calories you can get, and that's going to be processed foods. This 
has to do with our farm policy and what we subsidize and what we don't. Help me understand the connection between hunger and obesity. Hunger and obesity are both forms of malnutrition. Meaning? Meaning, not, it means not getting the right kinds of nutrients for an active and healthy life. If you go back to the definition of food insecurity, it means having enough food for an active and healthy life. So when people think about hunger, they think, oh, it's just not enough food. But actually, food insecurity, which is a much broader term, much more, much more precise, captures that type of experience where families don't have enough money for healthy and fresh food so they will in order to stretch their dollar they'll be they'll send it on they'll spend it on soda or on um, foods that have very high calories so because they know that their kids are hungry they have to be able to stretch their dollar in order to fill their own tummies and the tummies of their children they know it's not healthy but they're just trying to figure out with the immediate the immediacy of hunger so they eat lots of high calories salt sodium, those are the kinds of things that are not good for an active and healthy life. It's another form of hunger. So you can look at people who are o overweight and obese and think maybe they don't have enough money for food. Maybe they're anxious about where their next meal is coming from. You say in the film that there are 50 million people, one in six, who are food insecure, who do not have enough mm -hmm. good nutrition to, uh, to, to thrive. Mm -hmm. It's shocking that here in the wealthiest nation on earth, we have this many people who do not have either access to, to healthy foods or nor can they afford it. What does it say that one out of every two kids in this country at some point in their childhood, as I learned from your film, will be on food assistance? One out of two? I see a country in crisis and it's a crisis that we need to address and we need political leadership and policies that tackle this problem dead on. And when we were making the film, um, we looked to a film that aired on CBS in 1968 called Hunger in America. Food is the most basic of all human needs. That showed the nation shocking conditions and, and children that were starving. But man can't remain alive without food. We're talking about 10 million Americans. In this country, the most basic human need must become a human right. And citizens reacted. And what they did, though, and part of this had to do with the reporting at the time, was they demanded legislative response. They demanded that their politicians take responsibility and address the problem. And I think that today we have, you know, every maybe once a year around the holidays, there are portraits of the hungry in America. but instead of pointing to political solutions, they're often pointing to charitable response as the solution. And I think uh, that's, a, that's a really also significant cause for how, how, we, how we have gotten to the point where one in six are food insecure. You have a sequence in the film that drives home the reliance on, on charity and the conclusion that it's not enough. The 80s created the myth that A, hungry people deserved it, and B, well, we could really fill in the gaps with the charities. And so we had a proliferation of emergency responses, soup kitchens, food pantries, moving from literally a shelf in the cupboard of the pastor's office to an operation with regular hours. Something changed during that period of time. There developed this ethos that government was doing too much. And more importantly, the private sector's wonderful, and let's feed people through charity. We have basically created a kind of secondary food system for the poor in this country. Millions and millions of Americans as many as 50 million Americans, rely on charitable food programs for some part of meeting their basic food needs. That's something that's extremely important. The churches and the community groups that do hand out food are doing an incredible service to this country and to the children that are experiencing hunger. But that's just a quick fix. That's for today and tomorrow, maybe for next week. We call it emergency food. It's no longer emergency food. This is called chronic use of a broken system for which people cannot be held accountable. 
charity is a great thing, but it's not the way to end hunger. We don't fund our Department of Defense through charity, you know. We shouldn't, uh, you know, see that our kids are healthy through charity either. So Americans responded with a thousand points of light uh, in the first Bush administration. But you say it's not enough. Well, it, it's not enough because despite all of that, despite all the money that's being raised, despite the food drives, despite the proliferation of these, of these food banks and soup kitchens, we still have 50 million people who are food insecure. And what we've found, both during the making of the film and, in fact, since showing the film, um, you know, food bank directors repeatedly sharing right. with us, you know, we can't do this alone. We need government to play its role because it should be an emergency food system, as Mariana says in the film, and it, it should be, you know, it, there sh it should be complementing government programs that really address the needs of uh, the most vulnerable. I'd like to really draw your attention to the impact the emergency food system has compared to the government food assistance programs. What emergency food can do is about this much, about 5% of dealing with the problem, this much. Okay. What, does the, what does the federal government do with the nutrition assistance? Food stamps, or SNAP, it's called, WIC, women, infants, and children, school breakfast and school lunch, after-school feeding programs. Those programs we know make a tangible difference in the health and well-being of children and adults. So we know that if families are receiving food stamps or SNAP benefits, they, their uh, cognitive, social, and emotional development is better. We know that they're less likely to be hospitalized. The same thing goes for WIC. We also know that WIC can reduce the stress that moms often feel when, they, when they're a new mom and they're very poor. So these programs we know have a tangible public health impact. There, we, there's no research that shows what kind of impact the emergency food system is having. We know that when about 30 million children are being fed every day in this country through, through school breakfast and school lunch, that is magnificent. And those kinds of programs need to be protected and to be promoted. There's a young woman in the film, Barbie Iscardo. She was a year looking for a job. She had food stamps while she was doing so. Then she got work. And yet, as a result of getting work, mm -hmm. she no longer qualified for food stamps or subsidized child care, and her mm -hmm. children could therefore no longer receive breakfast or lunch at daycare. Anyone can sit there and tell you, oh, I've been through this, I've been through that, I got through it. Yeah, I've been through this, I've been through that, I got through it, but if you open my fridge, it's, I'm there again five days into the month, and I'm going to be there next month and the month after that. It's tiring. When I was on food stamps, I didn't have to worry about my kids not eating. It was just, how can I make it stretch? You know, I might have to take a little bit from this day. It was more about balancing everything, where now we have nothing. I literally have nothing left. Like, I'm gonna give them a hot pocket for dinner tomorrow. Like, what am I supposed to do? What do I give them? Stress. Stress is very damaging to moms and kids. So you have moms that will often scrimp on their own diets in order to feed their children. But what you see overall, the big picture there is that Barbie was working full time in those moments and therefore became ineligible yeah. For, for food assistance. So what, right, what you see is what we call in the research world the cliff effect. So if a family makes just enough money to get themselves over the lip of whatever the, um, the income uh, limit is, they'll lose benefits that are actually very helpful to them and to their own children and to, and to their health. So you can have a family kind of going up and up and say, oh, I'm going to take that extra, I'm going to get a raise, or I'll, t I'll work overtime. They work just enough to fall over the cliff, lose their benefits, and then they're, they're worse off than where they were before. So we have a really big problem in this country with the way that we are looking at our, at our wages and our public assistance programs and how they're interacting with each other. And that, that scene was one of the most difficult to film. And, and, and both because of just, you know, the, the, the the pain that Barbie was feeling and, and, and allowing us to, to capture, 
But also, as filmmakers, Barbie had gotten the full-time job, and so we thought this is the this is the end of the film. The arc and of the story. Exactly. And when this happened, we were devastated for, for Barbie and thought, what is this going to do to the story? Well, of course, as filmmakers, we have to follow the story. And I remember the conversation that we had with, with Mariana where we we were talking about this and we were worried that it wasn't representative and then learned this is in fact so representative and a really important problem to expose because we need for these programs, if we're going to have them and we're going to fund them, which is a different different issue, um, they should be meeting the needs of the, of the people who are, are using and benefiting from the programs. And in our research, we know that food stamps do help to prevent hospitalizations. They do promote health. It does help, but the the type of allotment is called the thrifty food plan. The way that the government calculates how much an adequate meal or an adequate sort of thrifty food basket costs is actually inadequate for a healthy diet. So even if you have families that are receiving the maximum allotment if, as if they had no other income, right. they still can't make ends meet. There's a nice twist in the film when you're reporting on what it's like to live on food stamps and you have an interview with uh, Representative James McGovern of Massachusetts, who did his own research, as you do, mm -hmm. into the subject. I lived on a food stamp diet for a week, along with Joanne Emerson from Missouri. We did so because we thought that the food stamp benefit was inadequate. Most of my colleagues had no idea that the average food stamp benefit was $3 a day. I had my budget, and I went to a supermarket, and it took me an awful long time because you have to add up every penny, and it has to last you for a week. And so I did it, and I will tell you, I, I was tired, I was cranky, because I couldn't drink coffee because coffee was too expensive. I mean, there are people who are living on that food stamp allocation, and you really can't. For us, it was an exercise that ended in a week. For millions of other people in this country, that's their way of life. Every day is a struggle just to eat. Sadly, Representative McGovern is one of few leaders and voices in Congress uh, pushing to do the right thing here, which is to protect and improve food stamps and other government programs. Um, he's an incredible leader, but he is even having trouble getting his, you know, members of his own party to support uh, his efforts to protect these, these programs, and that's really troubling and upsetting. The road to reform always leads to Washington, and there almost every reform, whether it's the environment or whether it's agriculture or food, hits up against the power of big money to write the laws it wants and influence the politicians it needs. You found that to be the case, didn't you? Yes, I think that, um, you know, I mean, I believe um, and I don't think naively that that we Americans should be able to influence how our politicians vote on these issues. That's not happening right now. And the problem with this issue is that you don't always, it's not so obvious necessarily how a politician is voting when it comes to programs that, um, that uh, address food insecurity. There was a poll taken, I think in connection with your mm -hmm. film, that found the majority of Americans actually were surprised to hear that 50 million people don't know where their next meal is coming from. And many of those polled just don't think of hunger as a pressing issue. Given your work uh, on this, how do you explain it? There is this concept that you can somehow see hunger that, we, of course, um, we would know that there are hungry children if they were fishing around in the garbage can or if there were flies coming around, they had swollen bellies and, uh, you know, limp on the sidewalk. But that's not what hungry children look like. We can, you don't see that in the United States. You might see that's, that's like severe starvation when you're dealing in times of war and massive drought. Somalia, the Congo, right. Sudan. Right. So in the United States, it's children like Rosie who would light up the room when they come in. It's moms. Like Barbie Scardo is beautifully spoken, so brilliant. Her children are funny and, and enjoyable, and yet they're still experiencing food insecurity and hunger. So I think people are actually shocked. They, well, I, can, I don't see it, so it can't be real, and they don't believe the numbers. Um, but what, it, what, what is happening underneath is a massive crisis in human potential in the United States. Our kids are showing up to school not ready to learn. When they're in school, they can't concentrate. You have kids who are food insecure when they're adolescents. 
they're suffering with stress and suicidal ideation. That's what we find in our research. How can suicide we suicide ideation? Suicidal ideation. So it's thinking about, oh, what does it matter that I live? I'm thinking it's about it's thinking about killing yourself. These are very depressing and um, stressful experiences to experience hunger, to see your parents struggling with that, to struggle yourself. So when you what's happening is that we are developing a whole like half of the country it, it overall is really left out of the public dialogue they are underpaid undervalued unhealthy and we can prevent this kind of that we can prevent this that's why i think it's so important that what's so exciting about what witnesses to hunger is trying to accomplish is to make sure that people who know the experience of hunger and poverty firsthand are a part of the national dialogue. That they're not silenced, they're not sort of shamed over off in the corner, that they're actually front and center. They're the ones who can turn it around. So we have to take back our democracy, be more engaged. And I think that a lot of people sort of in the middle who haven't struggled with hunger or poverty think, oh, well, just let the government handle it. They must be doing the right thing and there's no hunger. That's just called disengagement. We've got a big problem in our country with, with being engaged about what our politicians are actually doing for us. You can't just go down, you can't go to Congress and talk to legislators one time and they'll get it. I think it's really hard to break through the, the cloud over um, our legislators. I'm not really sure who they're listening to, except for people who have a lot of money and a lot of influence. So I think they're very touched by the personal experiences of, of a person who's poor, especially for a mom. So I've actually seen Senate staffers get very teary-eyed listening to the stories. And they say, oh, keep telling your stories, keep telling your stories. But then they'll turn around and vote to cut food stamps. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm wondering, who is it that's influencing Congress? Who's got their thumb on what Congress can do? And I think that there's just not enough people who are poor who have an opportunity to speak out. I don't think they get enough press. They don't, they're not... In, in they're not, they don't have, they're sort of shut out. There's no opportunity for people who are low income to really engage in our democracy. And I think that they're actively shut out as well. So bear with me though, as I put on my horns and play devil's advocate. There are a lot of Americans who think that we're spending too much on food stamps and that the cost is out of hand. Your poll associated with your film suggests that last year alone, the government spent 81 billion dollars on this nutritional safety net, mm -hmm. as you call it, not SNAP, uh, what we used to know as food stamps. And some folks say that is simply way too much and that we're creating a culture of dependency. Here's Representative, Republican Representative Steve King of Iowa. Handing out benefits is not an economic stimulator. Uh, but we want to take care of the people that are needy, the people that are hungry, and we've watched uh, this program grow from a number that I think I first memorized when I arrived here in Congress at about 19 million people, now about 49 million people. And it appears to me that the goal of this administration is to expand the roles of people that are on SNAP benefits, and their purpose for doing so, in part, is because of what the gentleman has said from Massachusetts. Another purpose for that, though, is just to simply expand the dependency class. Well, first of all, I'm a researcher, so I like to base things on empirical evidence. There is no evidence that the food stamp program creates dependency. Let me show you what, what this congressperson is doing. Basically, they're pinning the problems that we have in this country on people who are poor. If you think about people who are poor, are, you have 80% of people who are food insecure are actually working. That means their wages are so low that they're eligible for food stamps. So you want to talk about dependency in this country? Let's talk about corporations and businesses that pay such low wages that they depend on the United States government to, to, um, to add money to those wages through the income assistance programs like SNAP. So because if you take a company like Walmart, pays their workers so low that their workers are actually eligible for food stamps, Who's dependent on the U.S. government? I'd have to say it's Walmart is the welfare queen here. But if I were Congressman King sitting here, I might say to you, you make a very convincing case, and I believe that both of you are genuinely committed to this issue, but you know, 48 million people are receiving food stamps. Can't you see why some of my constituents in Iowa would be shocked by that and at the cost? Well, I think it's also important to look at how many corporations and agribusinesses are collecting subsidies out of the same, the same government uh, bill, the farm bill. And I think that there's an ethos in Congress right now that 
assisting those individuals who need help via the food stamp program or WIC or, or school meals um, is, is big government and is, 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 is going to put us you know, in, into debt. But uh, providing subsidies to large agribusinesses and big corporations is, is just business as usual. And I think we're looking at you know, investing in our youth and investing in our future. And if it doesn't get to you, Congressman, from the moral point of view, that it's really, frankly, not OK to have kids like Rosie and, and Barbie's kids um, to the tune of 17 million of them in, in our nation, um, well, what about the cost of not doing anything? Because the cost of food insecurity, the cost of obesity and malnutrition is way larger on the, on the back end and the, and the health care than it is to uh, get these programs adequately funded and, and feed kids nutritious foods. If you think about what government is supposed to be doing, it's supposed to create the conditions in which people can make healthy choices and live an active and healthy life. It's all about creating the good conditions for us to be, to, to prosper, right? Somehow, when we think about helping people who are poor, many of whom are working, it's, it, there becomes this type of societal um, vitriol towards people who are poor, as if they're not us. Well, actually, people who are poor are all around us. Their children are going to the same schools oftentimes. We need to really rethink about who we are as a country. Who we, what does it mean to be an American? If you think about one in five of our children living in households that are food insecure, they're just as American as the rest of us. We need to really invest in our own country and who we are. You've been to Warston with some of your constituents. Mm -hmm. You've made your case. You're up against the interlocking power grid of big agriculture, big corporations, and big government. What makes you think you have a chance of turning them around. Mm, the power of the human spirit. When you have a lot of moms who have had enough, we can take over Congress and say, we care about our children just like you care about your children. But we need more moms, we need more families to be able to speak up. I think that we need to take over, take back our democracy, take back our sense of involvement, of belonging, that this is our government. This government is supposed to be working for everyone, regardless of how you were born or where you were born or how much money you make. It's supposed to work for all of us. I've got to figure out a way to just help the people who are in power to recognize their own sense of humanity and recognize that they are no different than Barbie E. Scardo, no different than Rosie, that their kids are no different than Rosie, that we're all a part of that same human family. Ultimately, that's what we need to tap into. On that note, thank you, Dr. Mariana Chilton, for your work. And uh, Christy Jacobson, thank you for an extraordinary uh, film. And thank, thank you. you both for being here. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. Food stamps were at the core of the monster farm bill that went down to defeat in the House of Representatives last week. That bill would have cut food stamps by some $20 billion over 10 years. But that was too little for House Republicans and too much for House Democrats, although Senate Democrats had already agreed to cuts of more than $4 billion. Here to talk about food stamps and the farm bill is a journalist whose beat is hunger, politics, and policy. Greg Kaufman is poverty correspondent for The Nation magazine and a contributor to our website, BillMoyers.com. He's also an advisor to the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, founded by journalist Barbara Ehrenreich and the Institute for Policy Studies. Greg Kaufman, welcome. Great to be with you, Bill. There are almost 48 million people using food stamps a day, and over recent years, that's a 70% increase. What does your own reporting tell you about why? Well, the biggest reason, I think, is the proliferation of low-wage work. People are, are, are working, and they're not getting paid enough to feed their families, pay their utilities, and pay for their housing, pay for their health care. Um, we had 28% uh, of workers in 2011 made wages that were less than the poverty line. 
uh, poverty wages. 50% uh, of the jobs in this country make less than $34,000 a year. 25% make less than the poverty line for a family of four, just, which is $23,000 a year. So if you're not paying people enough to pay for the basics, they're gonna need help getting food. And food stamps expanded because we went through the greatest, the worst recession since the Great Depression, and it did what it's supposed to do. And now, you know, mostly Republicans are saying, why are there so many people on food stamps? Um, you know, they, they're claiming the recession's over, but we know that most people uh, on food stamps are, if they're getting work, it's low wage work that doesn't pay enough to pay for food. The farm bill that failed in Congress last week would have spent $743.9 billion on food stamps and nutrition over the next 10 years. Republicans wanted to cut that by some $20 billion over the same period, 10 years. Given that we're spending 75 to $78 billion a year now on food stamps, do they have a case? Well, look, do they make a point that we're spending too much? I mean, if they're comfortable saying 2 million people should be thrown off food stamps, 200,000 low-income children should not have access to meals, uh, to their meals in school, um, hey, they can make that argument all they want. I think it's out of sync with the values of this country. Here is what Representative Steve King of Iowa said in the debate on the floor at the time of the, the farm bill was up for consideration. Quote, when we see the expansion of the dependency class in America, and you add this to the 79 other means-tested welfare programs that we have in the United States, each time you add another brick to that wall, it's a barrier to people that might go out and succeed. What does your own reporting find? Boy, I wish he would take a look at this great study done just uh, uh, in November of 2012 that was released. Uh, Dr. Hillary Hoynes at the University of California, Davis, uh, and her colleagues looked at this issue of, of self-reliance and food stamps. Um, they looked at the rollout of food stamps county by county, and adults who were born between 1956 and 81, who were born in disadvantaged families defined as parents not having a high school diploma. And they looked at those uh, people in their adult, adult outcomes who had had access to food stamps when they were young or even in utero. And they found that the adults, um, all the adults, had significant reductions in metabolic uh, illnesses such as heart disease, diabetes, obesity, uh, high blood pressure. And even more remarkable to me was women in particular had higher earnings, higher income, higher education attainment, and less reliance on welfare assistance in general. All these years, these guys have been saying it's, it's promoting dependence, and it's been building self-reliance. Um, I wish uh, that uh, the congressman from Iowa would take a look at that study. You watched the uh, debate over the farm bill. You followed it very closely. What did you did, summarize it for me? What was going on there? You know, with some exceptions of people who are, who are, who are committed to telling the truth, um, we heard that this was about the deficit. But food stamps over the next 10 years are projected to be 1.7% 1, 1 of federal spending, by the, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Um, we heard this was about fraud, but less than one cent on the dollar of food stamp spending is lost to fraud, less than one cent on the dollar. And we heard fraud to, um, from the chairwoman, uh, Senator Stabenow, Democratic chairwoman of the House, uh, Senate Agriculture Committee. Um, we heard a lot about this was you know, rural districts versus urban districts and, and welfare on the back of farmers. But you know what the truth is? Food Research and Action Center has shown that the percentage of households in rural districts participating in food stamps is the same as the percentage of households in urban districts. So my big takeaway uh, is that uh, if we don't insist on a fact-based discussion, these are the kinds of absurdities that we're going to hear. And we're going to get bad bills. You mentioned the House bill, but even the Democratic bill started with $4 billion in cuts. Um, Senator Gillibrand had a good amendment restoring those cuts, uh, which she would pay for by reducing the, the, the profit that the government guarantees to crop insurance companies. They guarantee a 14% profit. She said, let's do 12% and not do the food stamp cuts. Makes sense was trounced by Democrats who didn't want to stand up to the chairwoman and maybe lose their projects uh, 
their projects in the final farm bill. And they weren't eager to stand up to agribusiness either, were they? The well, big factory farms, weren't there still a lot of subsidies in that bill for big farms? Yeah, what we saw in a place at the table in terms of the agribusiness subsidies was consistent in this farm bill too. And if you look at uh, the donations, and I think some other reporters have done this, and I know the Environmental Working Group has worked on this, if you look at the political contributions in the House Ag Committees to both Democrats and Republicans, and those, those businesses are given big bucks to those campaigns. What's the one most important thing you'd like for us to know about the issue as it plays out in Congress? What's going on up there when they're debating the farm bill and food stamps? Well, they're catering to the most powerful interests, just like with, seems like with pretty much all legislation. You mentioned the agribusiness interests, the crop insurance interests. Um, we aren't talking about hunger and what does it mean in this country to commit to ending hunger? Why did you take this beat on as a, as a commitment? Well, on a personal level, I think uh, I'd worked for Boys, Boys and Girls Club in Ohio for a few years and, and got to know so many of the families there, uh, didn't know what to expect. But all the things I've been describing about how hard people work, I mean, that was the first thing that hit me, how hard they work two jobs, how hard they work to arrange childcare, how hard they work to get their kids to a safe place. And um, I, got, I got tired of sort of annual articles on poverty, not at the nation. The nation's always been committed to covering it. But, but when the new poverty statistics would come out, you'd see screaming headlines, record poverty, oh my God, poverty, poverty. Very few of the articles actually interviewed people who were in poverty. You know, the fact that, that over one in three Americans, over 100 million Americans are living at just twice the poverty level. So just- Which is about what? About 36,000, less than $36,000 for a family of three. That's crazy. I mean, because we have poverty defined at you know, eight, such a low level, $18,000 for a family of three. But really, if you think about poverty as access to the basics that, we, that everybody needs, food, housing, healthcare, decent job, you know, education, you know, we know it takes a lot more than that. What's your own sense of why this is the case, this vast inequality in a country as rich as ours? I mean, what does this say to you? The richest 400 people on the Forbes list made more from their stock market gains last year than the total amount of the food, housing, and education budgets combined. I mean, the Walmart Corporation right. made $17 billion last year, $17 billion, right. paying its workers so little they have to use government programs to get by. In other words, right. taxpayers are subsidizing Walmart's right. low-income jobs. Yeah, I mean, I think not having organized labor plays a huge role in that, the decline, declining unionization rate. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, Walmart's a great example. Paying employees, helping them sign up for food stamps. I mean, I'm glad that people can get food stamps, but like, why not just pay a wage? I mean, the, the, there are a lot of corporations that are, you know, want to be involved in in the fight against hunger, and the best thing they can do is get on board for fair wages. Um, so yeah, I think there has been turning away from real people and what they're experiencing in this country. That's why I was so disappointed. As, as, as crazy as the, the House farm bill was, the fact that the Democrats started with a 4.1 billion cut almost made me angrier because they're supposed to be the party that's in touch with people's real experiences. What do you mean? Well, like, why aren't they talking about the food stamps create $9 of economic activity for every $5 in spending? Why aren't they talking about what Dr. Chilton talks about, um, the, the the benefits uh, socially, emotionally, cognitively, physically, that's documented for, for children, that we care so much about children and what that means for their future opportunities. I mean, the Democrats are supposed to be connected to the experiences of ordinary Americans. And when you start with this defensive, wimpy posture of, oh, okay, we'll cut this much, instead of fighting for what you believe in, we're, we're in trouble. Our viewers, what would you like them to know about what you know about hunger in America. I would like them to know that they're great groups that they can get involved with who are trying to work on this. Witnesses to hunger, 
share our strength is doing good stuff with communities to get uh, school breakfast programs expanded. New York uh, City Coalition Against Hunger, who, you know, I, Joel Berg was saying we need to do town halls. We, we got to pressure all these congressmen to do town halls on hunger in every district to make it more visible. Um, Food Research and Action Center uh, did a great lobbying day involving more people in the community. So there are groups to get involved with that are, that are really committed to using science and evidence to inform our policy and to pressure the candidates and make this issue more visible. We will link our viewers and readers on our website, BillMoyers.com, to those groups, and we will follow your work in the nation and online. Greg Kaufman, thank you very much for being with me. Thanks so much, Bill. At BillMoyers.com, we'll link you to the website for the film A Place at the Table. And you can read analysis and opinion on this week's historic Supreme Court rulings. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Our radio producer is Helen Sulfan. Our editor is Paul Henry Desjardins. Funding is provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Kohlberg Foundation, independent production fund with support from the Partridge Foundation, a John and Polly Guth charitable fund. The Clements Foundation, Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Foundation. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Ann Gumowitz. The Betsy and Jesse Fink Foundation. The HKH Foundation. Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America. Designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.